Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. No matter where you live in Louisiana, it's Mardi Gras time. Carnival season is when we all get to suspend our disbelief, don a mask, do or be something outrageous, or eat something outrageous. We'll suspend your disbelief this week when we welcome in the Mermaids of New Orleans. Author Sally Asher introduces us to the magical creatures who come ashore here every Mardi Gras day. Then, Johnette Downing takes us on a musical voyage to learn all about who put the baby in the king cake and just what happens on a good swamp romp. Finally, Louisiana cultural scholar John LaFleur joins us to reveal the true Creole courier du Mardi Gras, a very different story than you may have heard before. It's all carnival all the time on this week's Louisiana Eats. Mardi Gras traditions often bring up more questions than answers. For instance, how did the king cake get its famous plastic baby? How do people celebrate carnival outside of New Orleans? These are just some of the questions that author and songwriter Jeanette Downing answers for the very youngest Louisianians in her award-winning books. Jeanette has earned many nicknames over her stunning career, from the Pied Piper of Louisiana music traditions to the musical ambassador to children. When I last spoke to Jeanette, she had some exciting news to share. The kind of news that, well, just makes you want to sing along. That's right. I have my 11th record just is coming out. 11th record? Oh, yes. my goodness. And it's called Swamp Romp a Louisiana dance party for children. It's the first record I've done with my husband. Uh, he's a three-time Grammy Award winner, uh, Scott Billington. And I have a duet with Irma Thomas on the <gasps> record. I have a duet with James Singleton. He's played, uh, I know, it, it's just been fantastic. And Joelle Savoie of the Savoie Family Band. And they're the Dukes of Dixieland, the Dirty Dozen Brass Band is on there. Um, Rebirth Brass Band is on there. And Doug Belote. You know, it's like the who's who of Louisiana music. And I'm just so honored that they came out and played on this record. Oh, my goodness. This must be like the dream of a lifetime for you. It really is. It's like my whole career came full circle. And, and to have my first record with Scott, is uh, he produced it and. um it's just been an amazing journey. Jeanette, I am so tickled to have you back here on Louisiana Eats because you are one of my favorite, favorite authors. Your work is always so food-centric. So let's get started with 
Who got the baby in the king cake? What inspired you to write this book? Tell me how you come up with the concept. Well, this one, I just thought, you know, I always think about children. They always ask why and how did that happen, you know? So who got the baby in the king cake? That's a, that's a colloquialism that we say all the time. But when you go other places, they don't know, what are you talking about? Is there a baby <laughs> in a king cake? Why would you put a baby in a cake? So I thought I have to explain to children, what is, why do we have a king cake baby? And why do we? Well, it's a good luck symbol. And whoever finds the little plastic baby, it's it's a little tiny thing, whoever finds their baby in their piece of king cake has to host the next party, the next king cake party. And that's just a way for New, Orleani- New Orleanians to get around and have more parties, you know? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, but before we continue the discussion, I mean, my goodness, this is almost like a cookbook because you explain the whole process of how to make the king cake. Let's hear the song. That sounds great. Who got the baby in the king cake? Did she find the baby in the king cake? Did he get the baby in the king cake? No, you got the baby in the king cake. What happens when you get the baby? You have to give the next party. Invite all your friends and your family to eat king cake and be merry. Let's party. It's Mardi Gras down in New Orleans. I love who got the baby in the king cake, you know. When I was little, I always heard tales of people swallowing the baby so they wouldn't have to bring a cake. Wouldn't that be a disturbing thing? Well, that is not good. That is not good. (laughs) That is highly not recommended. When they used to put uh, pecans in there or a pea. Uh, or a or bean. A bean. At one time, it was a gold fava bean, I've heard. That's true. And then they, they came up with the little plastic king cake baby. And now they come in all different colors, which is really fun. Uh, and you can have more than one king cake baby because we, we love to party. So more people have the king cake baby, the more parties we have. <laughs> you never have enough king cake babies, I think. Your illustrations are so much fun. Who's responsible for them? I illustrated that one. Yeah. I illustrate some of my books. Not all of them, but this one is. Um, And I use cut paper collage, which is really fun. And I like to use cut paper collage because it's something that children have in their classrooms or at home. And they just cut the shapes and glue and make three-dimensional images out of them. What exactly is this story about, Jeanette? Well, you know, in Louisiana, we have not one type of Mardi Gras, but two types of Mardi Gras. We have the Mardi Gras in New Orleans area with all the floats, but there's also a rural Mardi Gras out in the Cajun Prairie, and it's Cure de Mardi Gras. And they don't have floats per se. What they do is they ride around on horseback and they go from each house begging for ingredients to make a communal gumbo. And at the end of the the chicken run, they call it, um, they have a big party and everyone eats gumbo. Well, that brave chicken on the chase. How does he warn everybody about the revelers on the way with the intent of the gumbo pot? He will. He sings out, mumbo jumbo, stay out of the gumbo. Mumbo jumbo, stay out of the gumbo. 
Does he succeed? <laughs> he does. And that's a repeated refrain throughout the whole book. He does. He warns them all. And at the end of the book, the Cajun revelers, there are no animals to go in the gumbo. And they have to eat a delicious pot of gumbo serbs. Gumbo serbs? <laughs> well, you know, I am looking through the book, and it's kind of hilarious because... That chicken, that cheeky chicken, he's warning the shrimp. He's warning the pigs. Who all does he reach in the nick of time? It's a duck, a goose, pigs, cows, everybody. All the shrimp, shrimp oysters, oysters. Even yeah. the oysters, he had to sing to them on the oyster beds. That's right. And the crawfish. <laughs> and it, the book is illustrated by um, Jennifer Lindsley, and she's from Thibodeau, Louisiana. So she, she did a great job of making that that little chicken look really fun and and all the animals and, and all the masking because they do masking there too, but it's different from our masking in New Orleans. So they end up with a gumbo zerbs, which that's of right. course is that green gumbo that's really a Creole tradition. So this must have been news for those Cajun folks. That's right. They had to learn about our great vegetarian gumbo here in New Orleans. <laughs> and interestingly, this was your first vegetarian story in essence. That's true. And also it's funny because I'm moving toward more of a plant-based diet, about 90%. And that's really tough for a person from New Orleans. To <laughs> it is. But I do about 90% plants. So I thought, and I've had many parents say, well, we love your books. Like if they're a vegetarian family, they say, we love your books, but they're all about meat eating. You know, so you, have you ever had a thought about doing a vegetarian book? And I said, ah. So that's perfect. This is it. Gumbo Zerbs. Well, do you know what I really love about your books is that you tell our story authentically and accurately to all of those poor children who don't get to live in New Orleans. <laughs> I, I bet you have some stories about um, expats in various parts of the world who make sure they're raising little New Orleanians with your help. That's true. People tell me, oh, your book is going to Minnesota. It's going to France. I had a, l a little family uh, from France, and they lived here in New Orleans for a while, and they came to all of my shows. And then they moved back to France, and now they send me pictures of their kids, you know, holding my books and singing those songs. It's really sweet. And you're as international as your books are. You go everywhere with them. Yeah, I've been fortunate, you know, because everyone loves Louisiana culture. So I've performed on five continents. And uh, they want my music, uh, my Louisiana heritage, you know, the music for, um, and the books that all represent Louisiana culture. They must not always understand the language. How do you manage that? Yeah, well, like you know, food <laughs> is the best language, and they certainly understand that. Grab your brother and your sister, too. Ow. Show your partner what you can do. Ow. We'll be dancing the whole night through. Swamp, romp, swamp, romp. Jeanette Downing, multi-award-winning musician and children's book author. Her latest album, Swamp Romp, is available from her website, JeanetteDowning.com, and everywhere good tunes are sold. Let the good times Hi, my name is Sally Asher, and I am the writer of The Mermaids of New Orleans. I'm Melissa Vandiver, and I illustrated The Mermaids of New Orleans. 
carnival revelers go through so many transformations from Twelfth Night to Fat Tuesday that sometimes it's hard to separate myth from reality. Luckily, author Sally Asher and illustrator Melissa Vandiver visited our studio to set the record straight. As it turns out, mermaids are very real, and they're getting ready to make themselves known this carnival season. Sally began by describing how she first happened upon the mermaid community of New Orleans. A couple years ago, I learned about the underwater mermaid culture that happened in New Orleans. And as I was thinking about it, I realized just as people are different from all over the cities they live, and each city has different food and culture and traditions, if they're lucky, why wouldn't the mermaids do the same? All mermaids aren't alike. Tell me about those mermaids in the Mississippi River. Well, the ones that I wrote about in the Mississippi River prefer New Orleans over all the other ports and cities. And that's where they want to be because of the music, which is bass band music. They dance to the music of their local bass bands. Who else? Who else do they love on land? Well, they love Big Frida. (laughs) They love Big Frida. They have a lot of local icons that they love and admire, uh, such as Chris Owens and... Peggy Scott Laborde, and Margaret Orr, and Leah Chase, and of course, Poppy Tooker. Oh my goodness. Well, I have to say, Sally Asher, this was one of the greatest honors of my entire life. Sally, you made me and my buddy Leah Chase into mermaids. Tell everybody about my personal appearance in the book. Well, mermaids live in trident houses, which are designed if you throw a trident from one end of the house to the other, none of the prongs break, much like shotgun houses. And Leah Chase and Poppy Tooker are hanging out on the front stoop, just chatting as the neighbors go by. The mermaids swim by, they decorate, the children mermaids playing in the street, just hanging out with your friend, enjoying the afternoon. How do mermaids come on land? Well, all mermaids across the world are typically allowed on land one day a year. And so New Orleans mermaids, of course, choose the best day of the year, which is Mardi Gras Day. But in some ways, it'd be much harder to pick them out of the crowd because of all the sparkles and the costume and the glitter. Absolutely. But mermaids fit in very, very well and enjoy all the festivities of the day. All right. At this point, we have woven a fantastical tale But I cannot imagine having someone hand me this story and say, draw me a picture of this. Melissa, how in the world did you do this? Well, I really wanted to. So so I was really excited. So that helped. When Sally and I first talked about it, I was like on a high for like two days. Like, I really want I really want to do this. Um, But I've just been drawing and painting my whole life. So somebody telling me draw this, paint this is is just normal for me. And then somebody telling me, draw this or paint this very quickly by when I need it, how I want it is also something I'm used to. So, Well, but Melissa, I don't know. Have, have you had much experience with portraiture in the past? Because that seems to be an extra challenge. 
Um, that definitely is a challenge. If I was just making generic mermaids, that would be one thing. But almost every single face <laughs> you see in the book is a real person who exists. <laughs> if you were watching me paint, you can see me having pictures of people on my phone while I'm sitting there doing their little faces. Um, but I've been doing human portraits my whole life. It's my first love. And I don't get enough of a chance to do them that often. People don't buy portraits like they did in the old days before photographs. So it was kind of exciting to actually get back into humans because normally I'm painting people's pets. One of the fabulous things about the book are the itsy-bitsy, crazy little details that Sally made you paint into these pictures. Now, what were some of her craziest details? Um, I think some of the ones that I viewed as the craziest and I mean this with lots of love, are the, like, names of cookbooks in the background of a scene. <laughs> I had to paint those with brushes that I reserved to paint nail art on my fingernails because they were so small. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, but if Melissa could do it, she did it. And she did a great job. She did. And when you go out, your, your mermaid get up is pretty serious. Melissa and I go all the way. When we do when we do signings, we go as mermaids. You also offer to help turn little kids into mermaids on the spot. I was touching up my glitter when I saw a little girl longingly look at my glitter. Oh. And I said, would you like me? Is it okay with your parents? Would you like me to, to put some on you? And she said yes. And from then on, I would always have three to four little pots of glitter whenever I do a signing so I can mermaidize any boy, girl, adult that would like to. Also, you've had some reactions from some people in the book. You heard from Big Frida. Yes. My friend Jennifer and I have made it a mission to have everyone who's featured in the mermaid book autograph their picture. And some are a little bit more difficult to obtain than others. And Big Frida was doing a wine signing of her new rosé at uh, a wine store. And so <laughs> Jennifer and I bought a bottle and stood in line. And I don't think I had gotten permission from her representatives. I don't know if she knew anything about it. I don't know if they told her. Uh-huh. And so I was a little nervous. I didn't know if she knew. And Jennifer went up and said, will you sign this? She took the opening hit for me. Will you, will you sign here? And she seemed kind of surprised. And then I said, admit it. Well, I, I, I wrote the book. And she was absolutely thrilled and gave her a copy of it and, and loved it. And then someone on Instagram who does uh, basically takes pictures of her daughter reading the books, different children's books. Oh. Very sweet. And shot this amazing picture of her daughter with her mouth open, similar to the expressions that Melissa and I see at signings, that says, the moment you see Big Frida as a character in your mermaid book. Oh. And it was it was just, it was lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And um, I'll be looking for mermaids this Mardi Gras day. Thank you. Thank you. Emerald City. That was Sally Asher and Melissa Vandeveer. Their new book is called The Mermaids of New Orleans. This fish tale begins where most fish tales end. It's a school of food fish.
Parkland Hooky from School to give me a call. Coming up next, scholar John LaFleur joins us to talk about the Creole Courier du Mardi Gras. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and with support from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter, dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pim's Cup cocktails, and toasty warm muffaladas. All-day dining and private events at 500 Charter Street. My name is John LaFleur, and my new book is Their Words, Their Hands, Their Gifts, Louisiana's Creole Food and Culture, a Menu of Ethnic Diversity. John LaFleur is a Louisiana cultural scholar, Creole Cajun gourmet, and author who was raised in Evangeline Parish. On a recent visit to the Louisiana Eats studio, he spoke with us about the Courier de Mardi Gras, a ritual that has been taking place in rural southwest Louisiana communities for centuries. These traditions continue in rural parishes today and show us what the Mardi Gras was like in New Orleans long before the introduction of parades and masquerade balls. And it comes from the Caribbean world. The Caribbean world Mardi Gras is very much like what goes on in the country. I had an old friend who was a missionary years ago when I was a boy. She told me how at the time where I lived in Ville Platte growing up, she said the whole culture, they still had voodoo dolls being made by old women and so forth. She said, this is just like Haiti. She said that. I had no idea what she was talking about. I was a child of 10 years old. But it was somewhere around that age that I witnessed. Uh, I would see it all the time. We had the Courier de Mardi Gras, which is French for the Mardi Gras run. Huge groups of men on horseback or huge pedestrian groups in costumes that were very varied. Costumes that looked like Indians, the Mardi Gras Indians of New Orleans, this was very much so in Ville Platte, the Indian costumes worn by people who were labeled African. People wore the skeleton suits with the top hat, which goes back to Haitian uh, Mardi Gras and Carnival, those old traditions, the cymbals, the uh, drums. Everything was a Native American, I would say a Caribbean Afro expression of Mardi Gras. The costumes were beautiful. The old medieval chant of Mardi Gras is like a dirge. You know, le Mardi Gras vient qu'un fois par an. Charité, charité, give us gumbo and rice and all of that. That is still part of the heritage. It's part of a ritual that the city has lost when it's commercialized Mardi Gras. Why did things not change? For two primary reasons, things did not change in the country. Isolation and commerce. 
Commerce transformed everything into bigger cities that were heavily Americanized. New Orleans had the influence of 19th century French chefs, as well as Mardi Gras, uh, the Alabama Mardi Gras of the early 1840s, with big crews influenced New Orleans, fancy parades. That did trickle down to the country. But the original country Mardi Gras off of Main Street was a real courier. And you have these people that would come in beautiful choreography up to my mother's back door. And they knew my mother and everyone spoke French. And they bowed and they began the beautiful choreography. There were people who would come to the front of the lines with brooms sweeping away evil spirits like what you see in the Caribbean and West Africa. The costumes were dynamic. There was a sincerity. It was a ritual. As a boy... I saw these. This was a real courier. They would go across the whole countryside dancing and performing for people, the householders, to give them rice and smoked sausage and chicken and all the fixings for the communal supper of the gumbo that night. Because remember, everything stops at midnight, just like in New Orleans, because Ash Wednesday, the bells of the church and repentance demand absolute repentance on Ash Wednesday. Well, in your book, you describe this one last Mardi Gras that that you recall in Ville Platte. Explain to me about this Mardi Gras in Ville Platte and how this Mardi Gras that you remember does not really exist anymore. You know, Poppy, when you talk about my experience, you must remember that this is a collective experience. My mother saw it. Everyone in the neighborhood saw it. Black, white, red, yellow, and brown. What happens? The ringleader, the heir of this sacred tradition, his name was Tikai. Tikai in French means little spotted one. He was as black as anybody from darkest Africa could be. But he was a fusilier. He was a direct descendant of Fusilier de la Claire, the famous official, again, who was French, who administered in Louisiana. And remember, the French cared for their children. They liberated them. They were never slaves. They provided for them financially. T. Kai was a fusilier, but in the American period, he could not claim that name anymore. He had to use his mother's name, which, by the way, was a Native American tradition. The heritage of the child came through the mother's line, the matrilineal line. But T. Kai was the ringleader. He could sing. He was charismatic. He would lead the group on foot, not on horseback. And it was powerful. The music was like something that was totally uncommercialized. There were drums. There were percussions with Shasta Cola cans with gravel in it. There were horns, French horns that I recall. I don't remember an accordion, but these things were all there. Uh, and it was beautiful and dramatic. It left a permanent impression on my young mind. And my mother, with her very beautiful uh, Native American persona, very, very serious looking, intense green eyes with her beautiful olive skin. She walked a bag of rice and sausage and chicken and gave it to me to hand it as an offering. And when I, when the music stopped and the dance stopped, I presented the gift offerings and the leader, Tikai, went to my mother and bowed. She bowed and turned. This is not something you ever know or hear about with the commercial traditions that obfuscated what was once a very personal ritual, typical and tied to the people, the first people, the roots of this culture. 
the very roots, the same roots that founded New Orleans and gave us that rich menu that will never go out of style. So it seems from what you have written that that Mardi Gras existed in Villeplat, only it moved to Mamou? Well, Tikai died. And the Villeplat community was becoming more and more Americanized. Codafield had created this bycast system of you're Cajun, you're no longer Creole. So suddenly white Creoles who just started began, began disavowing Creole identity. When Tikai died, the people who were in charge at City Hall decided they were going to get rid of the original courier and give it to Mamu. Uh, Mamu was the redheaded stepchild in the family. Ville Platte, as the parish seat of the new for, newly formed parish in 1910 called Evangelum, that began presenting itself as Cajun, didn't want anything that tied itself to its Caribbean heritage or native roots because you had to become white. Cajun was the magic word, the shibboleth of saying, I'm white. They started newcomers based on the myth of Evangeline Longfellow's story, and they labeled the parish Evangeline, which previously had been the northwest corner of Royal St. Landry Parish, a Creole Métis colony Mm. founded by Napoleonic soldiers. So Mamou said, no problem. They saw their opportunity because they didn't have any kind of uh, economic catalyst to compete, and they capitalized upon it. But eventually it fell apart because of the increasing bifurcation of the people as Cajun versus Creole. In Mamou till this day, when you have the street dances at Mardi Gras, you have the white stage and you have the black stage at opposite ends of the street. But do I hear you correctly that those who believe they're going into Cajun country to see a career du Mardi Gras, actually what they are seeing is a Creole celebration. That's exactly right. You're witnessing the oldest food culture, the oldest expressions of Louisiana's earliest Creole menu, from griots and grits to sauce piquant de lapin to gumbo, sauce piquant. It's all there. There was no catalyst in the country like the 19th century French chefs to change that. You have to understand, until Huey P. Long, there were no bridges. There were primitive ferries. So people were isolated. The Acadians were not allowed in that area, with few exceptions. It would not be until World War II, World War I, that Acadian and Creoles of any sort were finally drawn together because the Acadians were forced to settle around Donaldsonville, the German coast, to Morgan City. It was the Germans who taught the Acadians how to cook Louisiana Creole. The gumbo, potato salad with gumbo, the accordion was German. The Acadians did not bring these traditions. They learned it through cultural assimilation. And the Germans got kicked in the booty and not even said thank you to. Well, John, I am so glad that you have been able to demystify this for us. That's the point. So how would you today wish everyone a happy Mardi Gras in the way that you all do? Well, I would say a tu and bon Mardi Gras. That means everybody have a great Mardi Gras. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with us on Louisiana Eats. You're very welcome, Lady Poppy. Thank you. Louisiana cultural scholar and author John LaFleur. You can find a link to purchase John's book by visiting our website at poppytooker.com.
Our guy on the food scene in North Louisiana is Chris J. No one knows more about what's happening in Shreveport Bossier than Chris, so we gave him a ring to hear how they're celebrating Mardi Gras north of I-10 this year. Chris, what a wonderful pleasure to have you back on Louisiana Eats. It, it just amazes me what a carnival scene you've got up there. We have grown over the years. I mean, in in the very early 1900s, there was Mardi Gras in Shreveport, Bossier, and it went away for several decades, but it came back in the 1980s. Um, and i got to tell you, there's there are some wonderful parades happening here. I would encourage anyone who thinks that maybe, uh, you know, Mardi Gras can only happen in New Orleans or can only happen, you know, in certain places to maybe consider coming for the Crew of Highland Parade here. It's a funky, crazy neighborhood parade where they throw all sorts of crazy things. They're famous for throwing grilled hot dogs. There's a a float that throws about 10,000 grilled hot dogs a year. Um, And this year, the crew of Gemini, which is our oldest modern parading crew, is actually 30 years old this year. So much of Mardi Gras is really about the food. What are the Mardi Gras foods that people flock to in Shreveport? Up here in northwest Louisiana, people are just obsessed with fillings. So you can get king cakes filled with just about anything. There's one bakery that does, uh, Lila's does a king cake called the Elvis that's filled with, obviously, peanut butter and bananas. Uh, You can get a boudin king cake topped with crumbled bacon and steamed syrup. There's just flavors galore. There's also a local vendor that kind of made some waves. Uh, He bakes out of a commercial kitchen but doesn't have a storefront. He made something called a bisking cake, which is a king cake made out of biscuit dough. Um, And it made some waves because Garden and Gun ordered one, and they enjoyed it so much that they wrote it up recently. But this year, I'm really excited because we have a new bakery that just opened up called Louder Baking Company that does really traditional king cakes that you might find at a place like Pooh Parts in Lafayette, you know, something just real and legit. And and we haven't had that yet. So gumbo has to figure in on this, huh? Absolutely. Um, and honestly, we're doing better in the gumbo area than we ever have right now. Um, we've had two recent restaurant openings in the last year or so that have really changed our gumbo uh, scene, for lack of a better term. <laughs> but Orlando's Cafe, which is a very historic local restaurant, um, it's a dis- uh, run by a young man named Damian Lewis Chapman, who's a descendant of the family that ran the Freeman and Harris Cafe, um, which was an African-American-owned restaurant that opened in 1911 and was one of the oldest black-owned restaurants in America when it closed. Well, Damien has reopened the restaurant as a place called Orlando's Cafe, and their gumbo is to die for. It's a dark, dark, thick roux that kind of threatens to swallow your spoon, but it's delicious and really different from anything else that we had in the market. Poor boys figure along the parade route? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a poor boy will stay good all day, so it's an awesome parade day meal. Um, we have a place in, in Bossier City called Kim's that is run by a young family of, of Vietnamese entrepreneurs who moved to Shreveport following Hurricane Katrina. 
And their restaurant's terrific. It was uh, featured pretty recently on NPR um, uh, on, on an anniversary of Katrina. But they started a second location in Shreveport, just across the river from Bossier City. And if you only get to eat one po' boy in Shreveport, I hope you'll go to Kim's uh, Seafood and Po' Boy because it's phenomenal. They've even got the Patton's Hot Sausage from New Orleans that I don't think anyone else north of I-10 serves. Well, another thing, when people think of Shreveport, they're often thinking about drive through daiquiris, huh? <laughs> I love it. I love that you think about drive through daiquiris. Yes. I mean, we have one of these stands on practically every corner now. You know, there's just, you can't throw a rock without hitting someone that'll sell you a, a, a frozen Incredible Hulk or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what's a Cajun curse? Oh, my gosh. Well, the Cajun curse, um, honestly, you, I hope you've got a designated driver and you ate a big breakfast if you're going to have a Cajun curse. Um, it's from the Cajun Daiquiri's location on Uri Drive, which is the nearest daiquiri location to our main parade route. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, I think it is the strongest daiquiri in town. Um, it is kind of a lemonade flavor. I don't know what all goes into it, but boy, howdy. <laughs> and once you're about once you're about halfway through, you are feeling no pain. And and sincerely, there are there are artful daiquiris in town. There are places that are doing really unexpected, cool things, naming drinks after neighborhoods and local people, local intersections. You know what I mean? But there's nothing wrong with a Cajun curse from Cajun daiquiris on Uri Drive. If you're just trying to get where you got to get as quickly as possible, that's the spot, huh? <laughs> Well, you know, it's Mardi Gras time, Chris. So, frankly, we don't have time for any artfully crafted cocktails. Right. I think we all need to let our hair down. You know, it's been it's been a, a wild ride these last couple of years, and we're going to just celebrate this Mardi Gras season. I know I'm going to have some daiquiris. I'm probably going to have way more king cake than I should. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy Mardi Gras, Chris J. It is so wonderful hearing your voice, and I hope we get to come see you soon. Likewise, Poppy, thank you for making time to talk to me, and I can't wait to see you again. That was Chris J., food blogger and longtime friend of Louisiana Eats. mermaids eat every year when they come on land for carnival? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to listen. While you're there, you can also subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. 
You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What do mermaids eat every year when they come on land for carnival? Well, for starters, they love to stop at the rowball stand. What is that? Instead of the brightly colored snowballs that New Orleans revelers love to eat, mermaids prefer fish eggs. They're colorful, too. When it comes to king cake, mermaids love it too, just like we do. Big rings of delicious sweet dough topped with sparkling purple, green, and gold-colored sugar. Who knows? Maybe you'll spot a mermaid if you stop by the king cake hub. Never heard of the king cake hub? Let's go. King cakes are as much a part of the Mardi Gras tradition as floats, throws, and flambeau. Every year, between Twelfth Night and Fat Tuesday, scores of bakeries across Louisiana offer their own take on these iconic treats. In New Orleans, one man is making it easier for local revelers to try each one without having to plan a road trip. Hi, I'm Will Samuels. I'm the owner of the King Cake Hub. Located in an enormous mansion-style funeral home on Canal Street in New Orleans' mid-city, the King Cake Hub carries king cakes from across the region. I joined Will there to talk about his new pop-up, which has seen a continuous flow of customers since its grand opening on January 6th. Well, the idea was to have a central location where people can get king cakes without having to drive out to Homa or to the West Bank or to River Ridge to be in one central spot. There was a customer a couple of weeks ago who had a king cake from Kanata's and Kaluta's and Haido, and I was calculating and I said, I just saved you about three hours and 48 minutes of driving around town. Well, you have really been like the king cake elf because your king cakes are also, they're going places. Where are some of the places that the cakes have gone? They are, we have, we've been shipping some here and then a lot of tourists that have been coming in and bringing them home. Uh, we get a lot of questions like, oh, can we bring this on an airplane? It's like, oh yeah, TSA is seeing king cakes all the time uh, and recommending which ones are, can be uh, transported a little bit uh, easier than others. Uh, we've been shipping a number of them all around the country. I had one, uh, client who I've worked with for a number of years and he sends them to all of his business clients all around the country. So we just had a major shipment go out of our Epiphany King Cake. What is the Epiphany King Cake? Because when I was growing up, a King Cake was this simple brioche dough, very simple with a little purple, green and gold sugar on top. I describe what you're doing. It's kind of like King Cake on steroids. 
It is, it is. And it, the king cake has certainly evolved into all of these fillings and then the uh, savory king cakes now that they're making. But the Epiphany is a project that Gambino's is doing exclusively for us. When we first started talking with them, we were like, we want to be able to create something that is ours. And Gambino's is making it. And what they're doing is basically... 70 years of carnival tradition, right? Gambino's being the king of king cakes. They're doing something a little different in their brioche dough, and it's basically something they had done with their Kringle cakes, different from the other Gambino's king cakes. And they're using a cream cheese and buttercream icing and carnival sprinkles. And I'm really very proud of how this product has been received. Uh, it's our top selling product. And for its first year, we actually sold out on its first day. Uh, we had uh, promoted it beforehand, and people were even... When, when we were getting ready for the season, this is back in November when we launched the website, uh, we had made the king cake available for pre-order. And I was surprised <laughs> that people were buying this product that I had no idea what it was going to taste like at that point. It was a product that didn't exist. And it wasn't until shortly before Carnival that we actually knew what it was going to taste like. But we were so pleased at the end result. So what was pre-sale like? When did it open and did the results surprise you? It really did. We launched our website like the second week of November, and we did it in launching the King Cake Coterie. The idea at that point was to create basically a King Cake of the Week club. So we announced that we were working with several different bakeries from around the city and around the region to reach out to them to say, okay, we want to do this exclusive package. So I would tell a bakery, I would say, okay, this is what we want you to do. This is going to be your day. So your day is going to be Tuesday, February 5th. And you can do whatever king cake you want. You can be as creative as you want to. We just want to make it exclusive to the Coterie. And we actually went back and forth on the name, whether to call it the Coterie or not. Yeah. Uh, we had a number of discussions as to whether that was appropriate, would people know what a Coterie was. And we realized, yeah, the only time that people really hear it is in the debutante coterie but we thought okay that gives it that air of exclusivity that gives it that air of carnival tradition so we thought all right to call it the king cake coterie that gives it basically uh, a connotation of yes something that you can't get anywhere else now let's do a little walk through king cake lane right here in this elevated driveway you've got all these rolling shelves set up and more kinds of king cake than I have ever seen all in one place before. So we have several different flavors from Gambino's. Your basic traditional king cake, the king of king cakes. They've been making king cakes since 1939. So then we have Haido Bakery on the West Bank. Uh, fantastic Vietnamese bakery. They make some really, really good French breads and pastries. Uh, very traditional king cakes. We have the traditional plain, the Bavarian cream, and the cream cheese, always in our own family's pantheon of king cake consumption throughout Carnival. Haido's is one of the first ones we get every Carnival. Next. All right, then we have Kaluda's, which is very similar to Randazzo's. Great, great king cake. Kaluda with cottage catering, they do at Jazz Fest, the white chocolate bread pudding and the crawfish strudel, which two of my favorite, favorite, favorite foods at Jazz Fest. Uh, we have several different varieties from them. And Canadas. Now, now, where is Canadas? They have three locations. They're based out of Homa and Morgan City. And this was great. I was actually doing research and trying to figure out who we want to bring in of the king cakes that people necess didn't necessarily know about in New Orleans, but they should know about. Mm -hmm. And when I came across Canadas and I saw that at their grocery store, they have uh, like 60 something different varieties of king cakes that they offer. And they brought me a sample of their Snickerdoodle King Cake, which won the 2017 oh. festival. And this was 
oh man, I, I tasted it and it was like, wow, this is unbelievable. And it was like, I have got to bring Canadas in New, into New Orleans. And they have such a great variety in their king cakes with the snickerdoodle, with the cannoli. They have a gooey butter berry cream cheese. They have a hoodad king cake, which has been really popular, that has Bavarian cream and the gooey butter and cinnamon inside of it and a little football on it. I think people living in other parts of the world would be amazed that we pay this much attention and would put year-long planning into king cake. It's true. And this is something that's been in the works for a number of months. And people are like, well, what are you going to do after Carnival? Like, well, I'm going to be working on next year's King Cake Hub. We've got a number of ideas of how we can make it bigger and better for next year. And I'm excited about the response that we've had thus far, but also to be able to do different things for season two and we're going to have some some neat things next year i think well thank you will and congratulations i'm honored to know the baron of king cake thank you very much i am honored by that title and i appreciate you coming out king cake hub owner will samuels the baron of king cake That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can find our full broadcasts, along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Rouse's Markets, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producers Joe Schreiner, producer Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.